It's the 7th of September. Welcome back to Beyond Bitcoin. None of this is investment advice. This is particularly important to bear in mind for this episode. Today we hear from two major figures with opposing attitudes. The first is Justice Ranveer, prominent Bitcoin commentator and all-round brilliant individual. He's a proponent of the view that Bitcoin's feature set can either be expanded or built on top of to provide the functionality of the next generation space, specifically through the Open Transactions Toolkit. You'll have to excuse the dodgy connection. Sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. Then we have an edited version of a conversation I had with JL777, a pseudonymous developer who orients his projects around the next protocol. I've always been fascinated by these mysterious characters who materialize currencies and assets seemingly out of nowhere. James, yes we know his first name, has a vision of uniting individual currencies into what he describes as a super network. Up to this point, he's enabled importing other cryptocurrencies into the next asset exchange with his multi-gateway, and soon plans to enable secure exchange of any asset with his instant DEX, which is still in deep development. I got in touch with James and asked what he felt his place was in the world. What followed over the next few days was a rapid-fire exchange in which James explained his views and ideas in an almost stream of consciousness culminating in his announcement of a project to combine the features of multiple altcoins into the unified whole, complete with debit card. And now, Justice Ranveer. So, Justice, I figure the best place to start is with open transactions and what that is, how it works, basically as technical as you like to make it, because that's what, uh, that's what people want to hear about. Okay. Well, um... I definitely got started with Bitcoin, and when I heard about Bitcoin, I was very excited about, you know, not just the currency, but the kind of economy that you can create when you have a stateless money, you know, money that's divorced, uh, you know, central banks, and is a purely voluntary construct. So... I mean, I, I think we've all heard enough about Bitcoin and we understand it. And we also know that there's this big move rate, what people are calling Bitcoin 2.0 systems, which I, I hate that term, but I guess I'm just going to use it because that's what people are familiar with. But the, the underlying acknowledgement there is that uh, Bitcoin is a currency. It does have some limited, like, scripting and smart qualities. But even, uh, even if all of those were enabled, it's not quite enough by itself to build a complete economy. Uh, you know, we've always, as long as there's been uh, finance, we've had base money and we've had other tools that work with base money. So there's a, a pretty growing consensus that we're going to need tools that do that. They create financial instruments, which are financial instruments or contracts that are denominated in some unit, you know, that uh, just express some sort of agreement between parties. And uh, loans or contracts, uh, in corporations and equity and companies or contracts. You've got all these contracts and uh, it would be hard to represent all of these contracts directly in the blockchain. Now we might be able to put a pointer to a contract in the blockchain, but the actual logic and the execution and all of the metadata just doesn't go there because it doesn't belong there and it wouldn't fit. So we have, what do we have? I think we started with MasterCoin, then we had the Invictus projects, which I think turned into ProtoShares, uh, yeah. BitShares. BitShares, we've yeah. got Ethereum, uh, Counterparty, Chroma Wallet, no, no, sorry, CoinPrism. CoinPrism? Yeah, that's a... a I, it's a colored coin project in the same way that MasterCoin is a colored coin project. Okay. Uh, you've got now the Stellar one. Ripple is does the same thing, but it doesn't work on the blockchain of open transactions. I mean, so there's plenty of these projects all trying to fill this niche. And uh, the reason that I support open transactions as opposed to any of these other ones is because it does not include its own embedded currency. So it's also the oldest of all these projects. Almost, uh, it got its start very close to the beginning of Bitcoin. 
I mean, Chris Odom was involved with uh, the Cypherpunks mailing list, and he's he's been around uh, financial cryptography longer than Bitcoin existed. And his original idea was to make a, a cryptography library that could work with real-world assets like gold or bank account balances. And now the focus is shifting to making it work with uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, specifically Bitcoin and others like it. And so with, uh, with Open Transactions, it's a, it's a library of, of tools. And um, how is it stored? And how do people interact with it? It depends on what level you're talking about interacting with. Like you said, there is the base library, which uh, is complete and anybody could use it to build their own apps on. But uh, even after being out for a while, nobody was really interested in, in using uh, the the low-level libraries, so he's writing the high-level libraries and applications himself now, and that's part of what Monitas is involved in. But uh, if you're using the reference client that's available today, if you want to create some sort of financial instrument, you would create a contract, which is a, uh, a signed XML document, and then you find a transaction server that, uh, that you can operate it on, which basically means a, trans a server that will act as a notary to sign every uh, to, to notarize every interaction between the parties, and then you just start using it. the The issue is that um, like financial instruments are more of a tool. Individuals don't typically create financial instruments in the same way that they create cash. So one of the things that's that makes it harder to explain open transactions because how do individuals who don't work in finance uh, deal with liability accounting i see what you're saying it's not um it's not something that people can really grab a hold of in the same way that say one of these other ones like bitshares and stuff make makes sense or next with their asset exchange people can see a you know a stock on there it's quite uh, it's something they're familiar with whereas open transactions is a much deeper layer and like you said, uh... I, I see. I kind of take issue with some of these other projects and how they they market because um, I don't believe in creating financial assets purely for the point of having something for speculators to trade with, which kind of goes into the current trend, right? The yeah. reason you create stocks is because you have a profitable venture and you need to take in investors, and you're going to share some of the profits. Uh, in exchange, you know, as equity, you don't create stocks just so that you have something that can be traded on a stock market. I mean, doing that uh, kind of falls close to what I would call a scam. But don't you feel that it's necessary to have this uh, this ability for a platform to be speculated upon financially to drum up the interest and incentivize development? Oh yeah, there, there's definitely a role for trading platforms. I mean, that adds liquidity to a market. More people are willing to invest in, uh, in, the in an equity of a company if they know that they can easily uh, turn it into something more liquid later. But if you're, if you're talking about, like when you say incent development, if you mean things like the tokens, then no, I don't think tokens are necessary at all. And uh, the fact that uh, there is a company doing development on open transactions without selling is uh, the evidence that they're not needed. It's an interesting point of view because that, that really is in opposition to what the average person today who's involved with crypt cryptocurrency has come to accept as the paradigm. You know, uh, you have the next asset exchange which needs, which has a native currency as does counterparty, as does BitShares, as does Ethereum, you know, MadeSafe has multiple currencies built into it. I know that's not a, uh, that's a, that's a separate thing, but we're used to these, each platform having a, a native currency used to interact with it. And, but what you're saying is with open transactions, you're, uh, I mean, I presume you're platform agnostic and because you're not a central, uh, you're not a central trading platform, you're just facilitating contract creation there's no need for the uh, there's no need for the the native currency well 
even with these other platforms, there's no inherent need for the native currency. Um, I recommend this article by Daniel Krawitz uh, called App Coins. That's not the original title, but we'll just go with that for now. Yeah. But he explains that the 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 entire idea of an app coin it makes sense for investors and for the people who get to issue them. Of course, it I mean it's great benefit for them, obviously. But what's missing is what is the benefit for the end user? You know, uh, I don't believe we're going to live in a world of multiple currencies, because I mean, think think about this. Uh, you pass in groceries and clothes. Do you want to use a different currency for each one? While well, I agree with you without fully understanding um, how these platforms would exist without those currencies. Uh, I do feel like it may be that through a complex array of uh, of options contracts, uh, you might be able to have kind of a unified a unified currency that is tied to all of them. But the the issue with that is it introduces friction. Right. I mean, it's yeah. You can make you could make a unified wallet that as soon as you want to buy clothes, it would sell some of your gas coins and buy clothes coins with them, and work seamlessly from the end user. Yeah, that could all be done, but it's still going to be more expensive than just having money. Nobody works for free. Nobody runs trading platforms for free. Nobody ties up their liquidity in market orders for free. Nobody executes trades for free. So. A world of multiple currencies is a world of much higher overhead than a world of money. But while that is ideal, the the world without the um, the a world without that financial overhead, is it still is it a case of the end user or you know, of society as a whole or you know the economy as a whole satisficing for something that works as opposed for as opposed to something that is uh, functionally superior? Well, um, I guess that's a conceivable option. I'll uh, wait till any of these other projects actually turns up something that works, though. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, wh what actually has Mastercoin accomplished in the? Yeah, not a lot. That's um, that's a big one. Do you think but... there's any hope at all that the pe the first purchasers of Mastercoin are ever going to uh, realize a profit on their investment? It, for anyone to trust these platforms, they have to be open source. So let's say MasterCoin really did hit it big and came up on some great software that everyone wanted to use. Um, if it's all open source, what stops anybody in the world from forking it and making it not work with Master, not require MasterCoins? You know, I um, I agree with you there, but I wonder if that's just the psychology of the end user. Will always just gravitate to you toward using Mastercoin, even though it's not necessary. There's probably a certain price level that would support that, but uh, I wonder if that price level is high, higher, or lower than the IPO price. Well, I mean, if you've have you seen the price of Mastercoin recently? Uh, it's uh, very, very low, almost at an all-time low, as far as I believe. I think one of the issues with uh, with Mastercoin is that there's no um, there's no way to, and this is something that other platforms have have learned from, is that there's no way to actually tie that I understand anyway, provide native value to the Mastercoin currency. You know, I'm not really sure what purpose it it plays in the Mastercoin ecosystem. Whereas certainly it only added confusion to the MadeSafe debacle and then if we look at other platforms they've learned from that and there is a role that their tokens play yeah even so if you, if you're building a financial uh, instrument platform and you include your own tokens now you're serving two masters you're serving investors and you're serving customers and it's customers don't want friction they don't want com the complexity of having to trade between different currencies and your coin need that in order to give the coin the value. Mm. Yeah, I wonder about. Um, I've I've often wondered that about Counterparty because you see with uh, with Counterparty you do have this. Uh, you know you do need XCP. You do need to be able to um, move your Bitcoin into XCP so that you can 
interact more frictionlessly with the platform. But, you know, like they're experiencing such success over there. They've got, you know, Swarm is a really viable uh, crowdfunding idea that all it takes is good marketing and that'll work. That'll fly. So, you know, this is where my, where my questions about practicality and just what the market will actually just do, even though it doesn't necessarily make any sense, kind of come into conflict. Yeah, the, what's the famous quote? The market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely been in play with the altcoin boom. But um, yeah. I'm really, I really do expect that in the long term, the better solution will win out. Now, who knows how long the long term will be. But um, the biggest thing that, uh, that concerns me about all these platforms is you've got capabilities, but do you, I mean, do you really have anybody other than speculators ready to use those capabilities? Um, let's say you're using open transactions to manage balances at a traditional bank, you know, a US or Australian dollar bank. The act of transferring money from one person to another is a Ricardian contract. Every, okay. every every interaction is a contract. I mean, they're, they're, the basic primitives in open transactions are you have receipts which contain your balance, which are triple signed, and then you have contracts that change balances that also end up being triple signed, or they're signed by all parties involved plus the witness, which is the transaction server. So you've got a the transaction server is the third is the notary, like you said, the third the third party, or you know however many parties might be involved. So how do you how do you ensure the uh, the neutrality of that server? Uh, how do you ensure the in neutrality of the server? Uh, well, let's let's say you were, uh, um, I don't know, maybe you were going to sell a business. Uh, you know, you've started up a small business, you've run it for 20 years, now you're retiring, you're selling it to someone else. And let's say this contract was important enough that you were going to hire a notary to witness the contract. How would you make sure that the notary is not colluding with the person you're buying from? This isn't a new problem specific to just open transactions. Uh, well, no, it's, it's not. But what, I wanna, what I'm interested in is, um, in particular, if you have a thought on how that neutrality can be assured, I mean, right now we have a big problem with reputation. There's no, uh, and there's no easy answer to, um, to providing a, a solid metric for, uh, for reputation, Pro uh, apart from, apart from, you know, collateral, basically. Yeah, I think um, reputation systems are going to need some work. Uh, I mean, that's, like you said, that's an ongoing open... The other thing you can do is you can split up risk, right? Um, get get into a little bit of the the details of the the triple signed receipt feature. Is uh, the the advantage you get from using this triple signed priced model is that you process things very quickly. Uh, you don't have to wait on a blockchain confirmation. Blockchains are so. How do you make decisions without a decider? And, you know, that's good when you need to maintain the correct issuance of a currency because if you have a decider, they can always uh, break the rules and uh, for their own benefit. So with the way we've solved the problem with currencies and the, the cost we pay for blockchains are slow and expensive transactions. I mean, the entire world has to repl replicate every com uh, computation to all arrive at the exact same answer across the entire planet. Really heavy solution for a contract that just involves maybe three parties. So if you receipt system, you get much less expensive, faster transactions, but there are entities who could make, who are making decisions who could uh, collude or make incorrect ones. So it's a it's a trade-off. Do you mean uh, do you mean to say that the trade-off that you're looking at basically is because you dropped out a little bit there? Um, you've got the security of the blockchain versus the speed of 
multiple servers? Yeah, speed and expense. Um, you know, with a with a notary a notary server, all they have to do is verify cu calculations and sign them if they're valid and broadcast them. And that's very quick, very uh, not resource intensive. With a blockchain, anybody on the planet who's part of the network has to independently perform the exact same calculation and check their work with everyone else. And so if there are a million people, nodes in the network, every co uh, contract has to be verified a million times. Versus with a notary, it's, uh, let's say, three times, each party plus. Yeah, so we, we have these two extremes. We have this slow, uh, uh, trustless blockchain concept, and we have a quick, inexpensive, but uh, possibly problematic from a trust-based uh, uh, triple signed receipt model and uh, the actual solution is going to be some sort of blending of those which may be different on a transaction basis even so it's kind of like a, a the actual solution will end up being a sliding scale of how much trustless at, at the price the action cost and speed the big problem that I see there is that we have at the moment a an there's an ideological attachment to decentralization. Um, people are obsessed with this idea that things need to be as decentralized as they possibly can and can be because for some reason decentralization means safety or not evil. Centralization is evil. Uh, decentralization is good. Uh, people seem to have difficulty grasping that, in fact, decentralization is merely a strategy, and it's an extremely inefficient one. And if we can find a more efficient way to do it, then all the better. Your way of doing things, cutting it down to a handful of server-based notaries, it makes sense, but I see that as having difficulty gaining traction in the current culture of cryptocurrency. The it's it's it well, yeah it would be great in a perfect world if all did in a way that there was no unilateral decision making. But we don't actually live in that world. We live in a world where time and processing speed and communications are all limited. So you have to allocate your resources. Uh, we can't all have a mining rig the size of a city block. I mean, there's just, it would be nice if we all could, but there's just not enough resources to do that. Otherwise, there aren't enough resources to do absolutely everything decentralized. So you have to pick the proper balance. You, it's a cost-benefit analysis on uh, in each case. And, uh, I mean, I think people will eventually realize that once the costs start to mount and they actually try to implement stuff. You can have, you, like, Ethereum is trying to do a single global network that manages all the contracts in the Ethereum network as a blockchain that puts all the transactions in the same blockchain. Um, that's going to be, that's like at one end of this, the other end is the, the open transactions model where the, the parties go to one transaction server and in between the, the exact number of servers um, doesn't really matter there's three possibilities, zero, one, or many. Right? Um, if you have a case, let's say Visa, all transactions on the Visa network uh, are arbitrary, are processed by them. I don't have any choice in, in the Visa system for who's processing your transactions. And like the OT model, you have a server that's processing transactions but there's out there could be, and you could choose any of them. And then in the Ethereum model, you have one network that processes transactions. And it's not an individual server, but it's one network that does it. I guess what I'm getting at is that there are, there's economies of scale, right? Uh, Visa will probably be able to process transactions more efficiently than any other system could because it's the only it makes all the rules it makes all the decisions it can get rid of any overhead just uh, that's related to consensus the next step up 
on the sliding balance scale would be the, the federated server model that Open Transactions is building out, where you do have more costs just because there are more servers involved, uh, so you don't get quite the same economies of scale, but now you have options. If one server is misbehaving, you can move to another one. And then on the other end of the scale, you have the Ethereum model, which is the computations are verified by the entire network. And uh, that would give you the highest, uh, the highest uh, trustlessness at the highest price. So it's for you have to look at what are the applications. Like if I have a a specific contract that's um, I'm going to loan my neighbor my lawnmower. Do I need to pay uh, the price of using a a fully decent a fully trustless system for such a low value contract? You know, it probably wouldn't make sense. Maybe there would be contracts where you do need to pay that that premium, though. So it's a case of choosing the right solution for an individual problem. So what about Bitcoin then? I mean, the Bitcoin network with this mining thing—it's totally out of control. Um, you know, it's getting—it's huge at this stage. So much money is being dumped into it, and effectively just being burnt. I mean, how do you see that? How do you see the Bitcoin network evolving? Um, well. First of all, I don't think the source consumption of proof of work is a problem. It's actually what makes it work as a solution. That's um, I don't know if I have a handy a reference handy, but it's related to the handicap principle, and it was the whole reason. Um, I get if you look up the original Hashcash papers and some of the things that came after that, the realization was that you can only trust proof of work if it's a valid expenditure cost. The more energy, or you know, the more the more investment has to go into Bitcoin mining, that is only useful for Bitcoin mining, the more incentive the miners have to operate the network correctly, right? Because otherwise, they're just throwing away the resources they expended. What what are your opinions on proof of stake? I don't think it works. It doesn't. Uh, it, do, it certainly doesn't work. It doesn't provide the same security properties that proof of work does. Could you expand on that? Proof of stake is kind of like the Federal Reserve System. The people who have the most make the decisions. So in a proof of stake system, the people in the initial release of the coins and have the most stake retain their power indefinitely. Whereas in a proof of work system, let's say there was a mining cartel that formed, they don't have the ability to keep out um, competitors, whereas in a proof-of-stake system, you can easily, uh, like if you have a cartel that controls a majority of the stake, all they have to do is never sell their units, and they permanently retain majority control over the currency. That's why people don't like proof-of-work. Uh, I mean, the whole proof-of-stake idea came when GPU mining first started to overtake CPU mining, and the older miners compete with the newer ones. So then they tried to devise an idea where they would never have to compete with newcomers. I mean, it's natural, of course, they would try to find that solution, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea for everyone else. Is that how it is, though, or is that just a, uh, a narrative that, that, fits the, that fits events? I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily... Um... I mean, we could look up on the Bitcoin Talk forums where the mentions of proof of stake first appeared and look at the timeline in relationship to the, uh, you know, the crossover between CPU to GPU mining, but I'm pretty sure it fits. And uh, I'll bet if we looked at the posters involved, we'd find that it was a lot of CPU miners who started pushing the proof of stake uh, position. That's awesome. That's really, that's fascinating. That's my that's my prediction. I don't actually have all the links handy to validate that, but that's that would be my expectation if we actually dug. But yeah, I haven't heard that view propounded anywhere, and it's incredibly valuable to have it put out there. The incentives in a proof-of-stake system are to get in early, collude with a bunch of people to maintain majority stake, and never, ever lose it. And then you get the whales who, um, who are the masters of the network, and I suppose, especially if you have a deflationary currency, or a currency that burns fees through transaction costs, you then have the, uh, the trend of wealth 
accumulation in the uh, on the side of capital, which is completely that's what we have currently in the fiat system. Right. It's it's a like uh, I was not being facetious when I said it's that the Federal Reserve is a proof of stake system. Proof of stake is a way of moving that kind that kind of monetary system into the digital age. Right now, the from a, like a data transfer perspective, the blockchain is, or the not the blockchain itself, but the P2P network is one of the most efficient, inefficient ways you could possibly do it. Because you broadcast the transactions as a flood throughout the whole network, which means a lot of nodes may see the transactions more than once, and then they see all the transactions again when a new block message comes out. And so that's just that's one of the things that'll have to be fixed. And from the chatter I see, it looks like they're already work, you know, working on making the necessary fixes. Do you have any idea what they might be? You're probably not the person to ask, but um... well, the 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 first like low-hanging optimization is you change the block messages so that uh, instead of the transaction data themselves, it just includes the hashes with the assumption that the nodes have already seen the trans. I think one and a half orders of magnitude improvement in the throughput. Well, that would be a nice beginning, wouldn't it? Yeah. The, the only thing that requires is there has to be a fallback path, right? Because what if a node gets a block and it references a transaction it has to see yet, then it has to have a way to find it. So, but that's not like an incredibly complex problem to solve. There are long-term storage problems that can be solved with archival networks. Uh, then there's even like more advanced stuff where you work on like data compression algorithms to broadcast the block, not as, not as a burst, but during the entire time while you're hashing. Right, so a miner, on average, is going to spend 10 minutes looking for a block. Instead of waiting to broadcast the contents of his block until the 10 minutes are up and he's found the correct hash, well, he should be broadcasting the entire 10 minutes. And then when he finds the block, he only has to broadcast a small header. And so there's there's cool things they can do with that too to make sure that the network doesn't have to process a lot of redundant data. And I already see people talking about the methods and how to do that. So looks like that won't be too far in the future. Hopefully. But yeah, because we've been waiting for, de for development to take place on Bitcoin for so long. You know, some real development. And Oh, um, yeah. It's like almost two years of nothing. It was yeah. crazy. I have a slightly pessimistic outlook just based on experience uh, with, with Bitcoin. And so that's kind of, I mean, and I think, I think that is what, or, you know, that's what the public kind of impression of Bitcoin within the kind of cryptocurrency community is, is that it's, it's very static. It's, it's stalled in, in development, you know? Yeah. Um, I was, I was in that camp, oh, as little as less than a year ago, I was extremely pessimistic about the ability of Bitcoin to actually deploy updates. And fortunately, I've seen some evidence that that's not going to remain the case much longer. Well, the, the evidence I'm looking at is finally a credible alternative to Bitcoin Core. Uh, what's that? It's a re-implementation of Bitcoin written in Go. Uh, by who, who is it by? Conformal Systems. And, uh, and so how could you explain how that interacts with the way, um, with the way we currency, currently see the Bitcoin core and, you know, and its relationship with miners and everything? Uh, I believe that right now, other than missing get block template support, that Bitcoin core or BTCD is fully capable of being a full mining node. The, the way I look at it is uh, when the World Wide Web first existed, you had one browser and that was, uh, I think it was Mosaic. That was it. I mean, Mosaic was the web. But then, after a few years, more browsers appeared, and I I think we're at that stage now with Bitcoin software. I mean, for the first five, six years, everything was Bitcoin Core. Everything was Satoshi's client and its derivatives. There was nothing else. Now we actually have a complete, credible alternate, alternate implementation, and from what I can tell, that has already sped up the pace of Bitcoin Core development.
It's interesting to compare it to, uh, you know, to Mosaic and, and the browser scene, because that's, uh, you know, a comparison. It's a metaphor that um, really changes the way one can conceive of uh, of Bitcoin. I know, like, people always say it's like the World Wide Web, it's like the internet, but it's hard to, it's hard to make that, that leap. Yeah, and it's it's been hard to get to this point because uh, it's not like there has been a lack of attempts to create alternate implementations of Bitcoin, but um, who've made these attempts, they all universally say that the existing uh, Bitcoin core developers, or they were just called core developers back then, were not exactly helpful. I mean, I don't think you'll find anybody who tried to re-implement the whole Bitcoin protocol, who said they got a lot of useful, constructive criticism and advice from the core developers. So it took a team that was very, I mean, it took a, the team that did uh, BTCD is larger than, uh, than Bitcoin Core and very experienced. And it really took uh, pre-existing ability in order to get to the point where they could do a re-implementation. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pity that, that we've seen, um, that we saw development stall. I guess, and um, and hope you know this is exciting. If if things with Bitcoin can kick off, because it should theoretically all of these capabilities should be integrated into into Bitcoin. I would have you know that's what I naturally kind of uh, kind of feel. I mean, you've there's a lot of it that can be. Uh, you'll you'll never get around the speed issue of confirmations just because Bitcoin has to get consensus among the entire planet. But in terms of the scripting capability, possible for scripting to be upgraded, for new opcodes to be added, uh, and I expect that new opcodes will be added. Yeah, well, here's hoping. You know, there were some complaints around the uh, around um, op return and the uh, the forty byte limit, which uh, which seemed a bit unfair to me initially. Anyway, unfair as in how they uh, reduced the unfair in that they reduced the the transaction size limit. Yeah, that caught a lot of people by surprise. And uh, I really think that's an artifact of there effectively only being one implementation. If we were in a world where there were four to six, well, for, for one thing, we might not even have a, an idea of standard transactions. But even if there was, there would have to be a large process for implementing those rules among all the nodes in the network. If you had a bunch of different implementations, how would they come together in the in the mining network to be compatible? Yeah, how would they achieve compatibility? Um, very high standards of software engineering and very carefully documented protocols. So it's possible. It's just a matter of uh, of coordination. It's it, it's just a yeah. It's a matter of really meticulous hard work. It's def definitely easier to build a prototype. Like, Bitcoin has been a prototype since its inception. There was one implementation you could make any change you need and not have to worry too much about documenting what you were doing, making sure you were consistent with the spec. And, and that's fine, but that's not, that's not how you run a, uh, you know, a global standard of any kind of significance. It's, uh, there's just a whole, huge amount of technical debt that have to be paid off one way or another. Just part of the, just the nature of building these things. There's two ways to repay the technical debt. Uh, one way is that you get more implementations that base their code not off of, off of BTCD, and you eventually deprecate the reference client as a tool that served its purpose. There's a lot invested in that, uh, like people who've been working on it for years, um, especially if there are people working on it who have a lot of old bitcoins, you know, and who are doing pretty well in their life, they might not have the same incentive to really push and through all the hard, boring work that needs to be done. But they're also kind of a, to their project. So it's whatever happens, it's not going to be an easy decision either way. Rather than paraphrasing, this is an edited version of JL777's side of the conversation. It gets a bit technical and will probably require a bit of research to make full sense of. 
It's also worth noting that I've removed most references to investing. Cash is disappearing from the world. It cannot be used for all debts, public and private. In fact, every year fewer and fewer things are able to be purchased with cash. The goal appears to be to database all transactions by everyone. Regardless of the reason, combine this with facial recognition software, where there is a camera almost everywhere now, and it becomes possible to totally remove privacy. Once that happens, it will be impossible for anything to be done about it as it is a self-reinforcing system, where the people who control the machine can literally know everything about anybody who opposes it. I won't go into the coming fiat collapse, starting with the US dollar and cascading to the euro and others. I assume you're able to do basic arithmetic. The only way I can see that the US can avoid hyperinflation is to sell large amounts of its assets. But politically, I doubt this is possible. People worried about social security going bankrupt, but the entire country is going bankrupt, and what can stop it? Confiscation of private wealth? Yes, that is the usual solution in the world, and conveniently, there is a full database on everyone. Sort it by the wealth they have, and there is the list of people they will go after. Something like this. Crypto is a way to avoid this. It gives people a chance to survive the coming storm. So I view my work as a life raft that people can use, and for the early adopters, a tunnel out of the fiat world. By building as much of an economy within crypto, more and more people will be able to earn a living, get paid, pay their bills, the whole money cycle. I give people the option to decide if they believe they should simply give the government 50, 60, 70% of what they earn. Maybe some people feel they're getting their money's worth. Maybe some feel compelled to follow the laws strictly. I believe each person should have a right to choose. I have been to over 50 countries. I have seen the world. It's not so bad as propaganda in the USA makes the rest of the world sound. Of course, there are some very poor places, but rural Alabama isn't exactly paradise. With the internet and crypto, everyone gets access to capital markets, not just the giants on Wall Street. BitGo got $12 million in venture capital to provide multi-signature services, while I developed multi-gateway for 500,000 next, and still have half of it left. Crypto allows individuals to create value themselves. Just the assets I created have reached a market cap of almost 200 million next, or 6 million US dollars. Curiously, Bitcoin Dark, which I adopted when it was at 100,000, is now also worth about 6 million. So this is a total market capitalization of 12 million dollars. Very strange, it matches the venture capital amount raised by BitGo. However, instead of spending $12 million to build these tools, I generated it through hard work and the help of a strong community. I only have a fraction of this money, as I sold the majority of assets to early investors, and of course, I had to buy Bitcoin Dark on the open market. Still, in 10 months, to go from 2 Bitcoin in my pocket to where I am now is quite the fairy tale. I think many people in crypto are quite smart. But really, it's such a complicated space, and with so many people ready to take advantage of you. I got $10,000 trapped when PeerCover got hit with fraud, and this was after I fronted 25% of my next stockpile, which was significant. So I have not had an easy road. But I always get up and keep working. This is really the magic. Just simple hard work. Non-stop. Finally, about my tech. I wish to unite the crypto islands into a single super network. It's so fragmented, and all the communities seem to believe other cryptos are the enemy. But all cryptos should be friends. No, should be family. Fiat is the enemy system, and if we can unite and make a stable crypto economy where anybody in the world can find a good job, get paid, buy the things they need, with privacy, then we may expect a large portion of the fiat economy to move into crypto. And that is the only way Bitcoin will get to 5,000. We all know this is possible. But unless there is a practical way for, say, 1% of the fiat economy to flow into the crypto economy, I do not see how this can be. My tech is designed to achieve this. So how do we get 1% of the fiat economy into crypto? First of all, crypto trading. This must be made safer. No more Mt. Gox. Use the blockchain. Make it fast. This is where Instant Dex comes in. After crypto trading, adding forex trading, maybe gold and futures. 
the big money is in financial instruments, and we can make the fees very, very small, so there's no resistance for these money flows. People also like to gamble, but many countries don't allow it, so my private bet project is for freedom to gamble peer-to-peer. The TradeBots project allows simple C programmers to make nice decentralized applications. Maybe even private blockchains if there's a use for that. And then there's Teleport. The bridge that was always possible, but for some reason nobody bothered building. There are privacy issues with entry and exit to the Teleport system, but with the exit being handled with anonymous credit card and the entry by Bullberry or other anonymous coins, this will make for a very private system. So it becomes a rather large-scale endeavour. But soon I will have very many people helping, and I am almost finished with the hardest portions of the tech, so I think I will deserve some nice vacation early next year. Smiley face, James. In another message he went on to say, It would be a tremendous help to me if you could find some like-minded C and C++ programmers. It seems that C is becoming like ancient Greek, and few are still proficient at it. The sooner I can get a team of coders helping with the actual coding, the better, as I see the solution, but will take some months, and with more people coding, it will of course develop faster and become that much better. The thing is, most look at 40,000 lines of C and get a bit intimidated. The problem of being able to write a thousand lines a day is that even coding half a day, I usually work 16 per 28 hours, that's still 500 lines a day, and it quickly becomes so much. I rewrite it and make it smaller, but more and more keeps adding up, so any help would be fantastic. I have no fiat to pay, but I do have many assets, and all the key contributors should actually be able to get quite good money, as the system I am building is designed to monetize traditionally centralized services with significantly lower fees, in decentralized form, and this allows revenue sharing to all the people who are running nodes of the super network. Already, several other coin developers have expressed strong interest in joining the super network, so this is great progress to be working with other coin developers. And as it scales, the privacy level goes up proportionately, not to mention the peer-to-peer -peer trades across the coin networks. There are assets that correspond to the different monetization points, so it is very efficient to reward the people who are working on one area with the asset for that money flow. I used to be in Argentina, but my policy is to keep moving and not get any routes. Very dangerous with what I'm doing. Good to change continents wherever possible. Also, avoid any advanced country that has much funding for police, and also digital cameras everywhere. I tell people now that I live where there is no time zone. I don't follow any normal schedule. I usually live a 28-hour day, which is the natural biorhythm cycle. With the 50-plus countries I've been in, I have a pretty global perspective. And then on Friday, I forgot that your PM to me is actually what started Supernet. It really helped to have our dialogue as it forced me to clarify my thinking. This overview is basically Supernet. Some details have changed, but the part where I predicted many people will be helping is already true. Over half a dozen guys are working full-time. I assume that you know Polynex couldn't do the offering, but Bitter is done with the tech needed, and we are starting in a little over a day. The Supernet, which allows long-distance connections, for example from a node in one coin to a node in another coin, is in the final stages of debugging, so the point between code complete and debugging complete. This is the layer that most of my services are built on. It includes privacy servers that allow you to optionally shield your IP address via VPS, or you can run it locally, so it is a full decentralized system. It does fully encrypted variable depth onion routing and can even do an M of N up to 254 multisig. Technically, it is shared secret, but it is quite similar to multisig. So this is Supernet. It's enabling peer-to-peer -peer connections between different coins. On top of this is a generic API that allows easy addition of new services to Supernet. All of the other services are a simple client of the Supernet transport layer. The idea developed like this. I was just in the process of adding library functions to trade bots when I was struck by the teleport lightning bolt. Adding libraries is just the routine work of identifying what functions to let the trade bots have access to and make the right templates for them. Not very interesting, and probably why teleport hit me is my brain had spare resources, so it leaves a lot of unused power to just crunch in the background. Similar thing happened with the SuperNet asset. I was just waiting and struggling to find productive things to do. I seem to have a hyperactive subconscious that just takes over when I'm not doing something that requires a lot of concentration. 
like coding some difficult new thing. So the basis for tradebots is done, but not all the grunt work, and of course, the infinite tradebots that can be written. Now, I was working on tradebots to solve an instant dex issue, so we are currently three levels deep. The issue is that instant dex is showing an arbitrary order book for anything against anything, but it requires the user to manually make an offer for it to get accepted, and then for the two nodes to finalize all the details. I had it to where all this works, but there is no way that the user will like all this extra work. Then I thought about making some spreadsheet-like scripting language, but I discovered this thing called PICOC, which is running in the UAV firmware. So instead of spending weeks making a new language, debugging it, etc., within several hours I was submitting actual C source code via what would become the SuperNet API, and it was just working. So this PICOC is something I like very much. It saved me a lot of time. I always prefer to be lazy and use something already written and debugged, as there is enough that I'm already forced to do. I will have to revisit the source files in Instant Dex to remember exactly what state it was in, but it was at the point where I just needed to automate the order matching and negotiating, and that required the tradebot library functions. Debug, and then I'm away for the GUI. So I think, one week and the instant decks should be able to go to the GUI guys. And this is usually the longest part of a project. Since the GUI is never really done, it can always be made just a little better. This is why I don't do GUI. It is guaranteed never to finish. So to get the SuperNet teleport trade bots and instant decks into beta test and out of my daily purview, I think about four solid weeks. With my new responsibilities, it will unfortunately be slowed down by maybe double. This dangles private bet, but the sports betting website passing is being done by another, and since the SuperNet will already deal with the peer-to-peer -peer connections, and the instant decks will already have the order book logic, there really is just a few magic things that need to be solved, and I'm not worried about this. It feels like a small issue. The private bet will also be using a partnership model for all the casino games, we will select a good developer to do the coding of the GUI, and they can use the fancy new verifiable number generator I won at auction to get the random numbers. This way, players can be sure there is no funny business, slot machines, etc. So the big money should be coming in from this, and then, with the SuperNet users to cross-sell all these games to, the revenues will really start flowing, and my final big challenge in the crypto will be for next year. James. Fundraising for the SuperNet began over the weekend. It's light on documentation and should be looked at with skepticism, especially considering we don't even know who James really is, but his social media army has fully mobilized and the punters are throwing piles of coins into his fund. This will be an extremely interesting project to watch. Check out the links in the notes. Okay, so the feedback on the magic word was mixed. People liked a bit of a search, but gleefully difficult trivia wasn't so popular. The answer, for those interested, was silver nitrate. Today's magic word is the next asset ID of the SuperNet token. It's a long string of numbers, but you should be able to track it down. That's all for this week. CSIS was on music, thanks to Justice Ranvia for joining me, and also to James, whoever, wherever you are. Get in touch or offer feedback at beyondbitcoinshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks.